Inner Voice, a heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Voice Show. I'm Dr. Fujian Zane. I'm a psychotherapist, author, and the originator of the Awareness Integration Theory. And hello to Sean, our director at the studio. This is a show about what matters most in our life, our minds, our thoughts, feelings, actions, relationships, and our fulfillment in this beautiful journey of life. Today, I will share with you the tip of the week about how to transfer our skills from one area of our life to another. I'm excited to bring you Faith Alicia about her own journey through eating disorder and her new book, Do You See What I See?, which is an interactive workbook of personal reflection strategies and tools for anyone suffering from an eating disorder. I will share with you how to watch for your agitation, which can cling to any matter and create a fight within us as well as outside with others. And then I'll bring you Barbie Engel. She's the president of International Pain Foundation and the author of Wheels to Heels, sharing her powerful story about life-changing events that force reflection and sprouts her journey. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel and podcast. I love to hear from you. Connect with me. Go to fujan.com and connect with me uh, through all the social media. I'd love to hear from you. Your suggestions, your comments, whatever you want to hear on the show. But first, here's the tip of the week. Here's a tip of the week. There are many times in life when you know skills in communication, negotiation, emotional regulation, expression, rising above it all, and more. However, you may choose not to use them. You might know how to empathize and be compassionate. And yet at times you become cold and hold on to your negative judgments. You might know how to negotiate in your career, but choose not to negotiate with your mate. You might know how to communicate cordially with people, even if you don't feel good or you're angry, yet choose not to be cordial when communicating with your family members. You might be understanding towards strangers and refuse to accept your children when they do exactly the same thing. What are some of the reasons for these types of disconnect? People usually have different beliefs, rules, parameters, boundaries, emotional attachments for different areas of their life. They may not care much about strangers and therefore not have the same type of intensity of emotions or insistence in upkeeping certain standards. They may have learned a particular type of communication as an adult in a work environment and therefore compartmentalize and only classify that communication style to work category and not in family settings. They may feel safe and close with the family members and spouse to unleash and express all of their emotions while they do not feel safe 
for others to see the side of them, the side of vulnerability. They may hold an elevated sense of expectation from a parent that they would not have from a neighbor. They may think that they have to win and be the boss in some environment while they're aware that the same thing will not be available in other areas and so on. The important factor is when you have the tool or the skill and you already see the positive results in one area, apply it to all areas of your life. Most life skills are transferable and useful in all areas of life. If you see that your communication style works in your career, then use it at home. When you see that you can negotiate the best deals for yourself, then bring that negotiation skills into your daily interaction with people at work or at home. As you experience that you're capable of regulating your anger and anxiety and fear and sadness well with your customers, then use the same skills with your spouse and your children. It takes observation and attentiveness toward daily skills, appreciating the skills as it creates favorable results, applying the workable skills to other areas of your life with consideration of various boundaries in different areas of your life, testing to see if it gives similar favorable results in other areas of your life and modifying them, modifying those skills when deemed necessary to match the specific boundaries and parameters of that particular area of your life. For more observational skills and learning ways to clear the past wounds so that you can be open and opening yourself um, to all that is available for you to learn, go to my book, Life Reset, The Awareness Integration Path to create the life you want. Thank you. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dr. Fujian Zen, and I'm excited to have Faith Alicia. And uh, she is um, seven years in the path of recovery from an eating disorder when not managing her husband's medical practice or handling things for one of her three kids, she escapes to the confines of her home office to write romance fiction. And um, although it's written under another name, um, she'll probably share with us and that path and that excitement about the novels. But her new book, Do You See What I See? Um, is an interactive workbook of personal reflections, strategies, and tools for anyone suffering from an eating disorder. Welcome to the show, Faith. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Um, eating disorder is uh, one of the um, conditions that, um, you know, sometimes we go toward it from, you know, when we were a teenager. And other times um, we go toward it when we're an adult. And recently even, older uh, females have, have started to have that. And then it shows itself also differently in men and women. Um, I know, in, you know, I've been a therapist for 30 years and working with eating disorder, then I know that underneath it, there's a lot about anxiety and fear, about self-doubt, about 
you know, our, our thoughts about ourselves and all of it. And I'd love for you to share with us your experience and, um, you know, what were some of the causes for you? What helped you through the awareness so that you really wanted to go through the recovery um, and all of it? Okay. Well, um, I grew up as a child of an alcoholic. So, you know, there was a lot of turmoil and unpredictability in my childhood. I was unaware that my father was an alcoholic. It was very shameful. You know, it was always secrets because we had to portray that everything was perfect, you know, to the outside, but, you know, inside the walls. And, and I always tell my children this, you never know what's going on in someone's house because it's just so true. And, you know, as I, I guess I grew up in really living in a like fight or flight and I developed an anxiety disorder, a panic disorder, I've been agoraphobic. It's just, it really has defined a lot of my life. And what I know now is it doesn't define me as a person. It's just, you know, I've learned to live with it instead of run from it, which when I was agoraphobic for six weeks and couldn't leave the house, I let it control me. And I, you know, my eating disorder did not start until after I had my third child, which is interesting because I've been in treatment twice and I felt like the mom of the group, because as you were saying, a lot of times it does start when, you know, people are younger. And for me, it, it came on later. I was always afraid of alcohol because I had seen, you know, what he could do. I have also a sister who's a recovering addict. So I was petrified of drugs because I saw what drugs can do. And I know that you do, you know, treat addictions a lot. And I do look at my eating disorder as an addiction for me. I know, you know, it's, it's different for everyone. All our eating disorders are different. Our recoveries are different. For me, coming from a home with a lot of addiction, I do view it in that light. You know, I just kind of grasped onto that because I was afraid of drugs, I was afraid to alcohol, but eating disorder, you know, it just kind of gripped me in trying to handle, there was an eight year difference between our second and third. So, you know, it was just a lot of new stress because the other kids were older and I just couldn't handle it. And I, the anxiety was horrific and it just manifested into an eating disorder. Thank you for sharing that. Um, first of all, the children who, are, who do live with alcoholic parents do experience a lot of anxiety. And the anxiety can be that genetically their parents had it or the person who was an alcoholic or an addict in the family had the anxiety. And the only way they knew how to cope with it was to you know, utilize some sort of a substance or some sort of a behavior in order to handle the anxiety. So not only the genetically that comes forward, but also how they are behaviorally in home kind of gives the way. So if the, if the person does not know how to handle anxiety appropriately, then they can't really role model it for their children and how to handle it appropriately. So they'll go through some, some sort of a avoiding the emotion and either feeding it or numbing it or purging it or somehow doing something which would be, would be more destructive versus constructive. And I'm hearing that you say that in the family system, each person chose one way. One was, you know, numbing it. One was uh, 
purging it, one was, you know, dealing with it a different way. And you looked at yours and know, not knowing necessarily how to handle anxiety, that then this was the only way that you knew how to cope at that moment on a short term, but then it kind of like took over life, right? It really did. And it, it was not on a conscious level. I mean, like any addiction, just, you know, very conniving, it really, it, it, I, you know, we did come from a household where we didn't have, you know, healthy coping mechanisms. Obviously, you know, there's two in recovery. My father passed away several years ago, but he had been in AA for many years. So, you know, each, there was five children and each one had, you know, their own way. But on a whole, it was, you know, just, we didn't develop those healthy coping mechanisms and recovery has given me that. It's given me tools just to handle life because I honestly was just surviving life, not living life because I, everything around me, you know, just affected me so greatly physically and just with anxiety. And it's very hard to live like that. It's truly hard to live like that. And I still have anxiety, but I can be compassionate with myself today and I'm kind to myself and I take care of myself. I put myself first. These are things I never did before. Wonderful. Faith, what was it? What was the transition? When is it that you finally thought that I got to do something for myself, that this just doesn't work for me anymore? What were the process for you as you came to that kind of a crossroad of continuing with the eating disorder and the addiction or shifting and saying, this is, you know, I need to change. Uh, for some people, it's an, you know, like a hit bottom. For some people, it's an epiphany. And for some people, it's like two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. And it's like, okay, I have to, but not yet, but I got to do this and I have to. What was your process? What you just said is so spot on. Because when recovering from an eating disorder, I always, for me, I believe it's a journey, not a destination. So it's not linear. And, and it, you know, for many years, it was one foot in, one foot out. Because you can have this, but I need to keep this because I have to have control of something. Because I can't control anything outside of myself, but I can control this. And yes, it's unhealthy. And yes, it's bad for me. But when everything feels so out of control, it's just holding on to that one thing. And, and no, it doesn't make it better. You know, and I guess it's why addicts use drugs and alcoholics drink. It's just that one thing. So I went to treatment the first time and I, you know, I, I don't like to use, um, I don't like to describe behavior. So I would just say that I think it was one foot in, one foot out. And, you know, it was a part-time program because my youngest was young at the time. I still had to manage my husband's office. So I had responsibilities. So that worked for me at the time. So when I came home, I could do whatever I wanted. And as I said, eating disorders are very manipulative. Even to me at that time, I mean, it manipulated me. And once I left treatment, it's just very easy to get right back in. 
to those old behaviors, to those distorted thoughts, and to the overwhelming and it's too much and I can't handle it, so grasp for the control again. When my daughter was her last semester of high school, she developed an eating disorder. And uh, this, was, this was very hard for me because I felt responsible. Even though I never talked about my eating disorder in front of them, kids are very observant and they see your behaviors even though you don't talk about them. So it was very devastating to me and I knew I was struggling with my eating disorder, but I had to make sure that she was in a healthy place before before I let her go away to school. I couldn't allow that to happen because I know how fast it can spiral downward. So I got her help and literally the weekend after we moved her into college, I went back to treatment. And I, I think even then when I went back, I really did try. You know, it, they were more structured than the first time around, yet it just wasn't working. And I was there for several weeks. Now, during that time, I started going to Codependency Anonymous um, several months before. And that really started to create just a shift because just with the codependency in the family and all the alcoholism and everything, I just saw myself as very codependent and putting the family's needs before mine. And I was always on the back burner. I didn't know what my needs were, just I have to take care of everything and everyone else. And I'll just get by because I always do. Well, when I got out of treatment the second time, I had an ad came up, which I don't believe there are coincidences. And it was for the eight week mindfulness-based stress reduction. So I'm like, well, I try everything else. I'll try this too. And I can say that that's where the shift really began to take place because especially with anxiety mindfulness teaches me to just be in this moment of my cable not working my phones are out if people beep in right now you know it is what it is there's nothing i can do i'm powerless over these things i just do the best i can do and accept it i never had that attitude before because oh my gosh this is terrible i have to black and white i have to cancel this how could the phone go off today and the cable? You know what? It is what it is, yeah. right? So, you know, I learned a lot about self-compassion. They speak about it during, in that program. So from that eight weeks, I started the mindful, the self-compassion course, mindful-based self-compassion right from that. And I guess just the reinforcement every week of doing the homework, my therapist actually noticed the biggest changes in me that she had seen in a few years, and that was with treatment. So I continued with those practices, and then I joined you know, a happiness group for six weeks, a mindfulness happiness group, and all of these tools I started learning and practicing started to become habitual. And that's where the shift has taken shape. One of the things that I hear from you, Faith, is from going, um, going from a powerless stance to a stance of, 
I'm not powerless. I'm going to take care of myself. This just mm -hmm. works. And I don't want to sit here and do this destruction. So I'm going to shift. And I'm sensing also that the mother aspect of you that you wanted to be another type of a role model from your for your child brought on um, a lot of the motivation and said, that's it, I'm going to take care of me. And then from there, you went into looking at how to bring your uh, anxiety down with the mindfulness and then I deserve to be happy, the compassionate and then happiness group. And you took a step-by-step -step empowering yourself and learning skills in how to take care of you. Um, let's go also to your book. So what brought you to write, do you see what I see? And what is it that you want your readers to get from this interactive workbook of, uh, because it's partly you and is also you're sharing with your readers um, some of the tools that you've actually learned. Yes. When I went to treatment the first time, it was actually nine years ago. And, you know, we had, they gave us books that they required the patients to read. And what I discovered was they were either written by, you know, professionals in the field of eating disorders or by people who had recovered and, you know, had gone through the journey and were on the other side. And for someone, you know, in, when you're in the throes of whatever addiction or, you know, trauma you're in, you know, it's very hard to say, well, I'm, I can't get that. Like, that's great for you. And I, I've heard this on a, you know, from a different host about being terminally unique. And I'm like borrowing that because I honestly believed I was terminally unique. Nobody could feel like this amount of anxiety, yet go out with a smile on my face and nobody would have a clue because I hide it that well. But I was terminally unique. So when reading a book and you're recovered, that's great for you, but you didn't live in my shoes. So, you know, pat yourself on the back, but that's not me. That's not my path. So we started with art therapy and treatment and I was drawing my little faith characters and I was, you know, reading some prompts in the morning and I started journaling about them. And as, you know, the pictures kind of took on a life of their own and I just continued and continued them for years and thought, well, how cool would this be if I put them together in a book that's more like a we format because recovery does not happen in isolation. It does not happen alone. We need support. We have to connect with others. We, you know, we need professionals to assist us, but it really is not something to be done alone. So how cool would it be to put this out there so that others know, you know what, I have bad days too. And you know what, sometimes my ed voice, which those with eating disorders, we call the ed voice. Sometimes my ed voice still talks that this is a process for me you know i don't cross through that that ribbon and woohoo i'm recovered and for me it's like any addiction it's one day at a time taking care of myself first you know using these skills i'm learning and just for today so 
I did shelf the book for a while. There is a lot of shame. Number one, you know, my parents did the best they could with the tools they had. There's no blame. I really came to a place of acceptance and full love before my father passed away, which was a lot of work. And I just love him dearly. And he really, in his later years, was about just giving service and doing the right thing and helping others. So the greatest gift I felt then I could give back is to put my story out there like my dad did with his. Because if I can help one person even choose to make the right choice just for today to fight back, stand up when you fall down, it's all worth it because we're not alone. We are not terminally unique as alone and isolated as we feel. We do have commonalities. There's so many different eating disorders and symptoms, but when we go underneath to that, those core beliefs of I'm not good enough, I don't deserve, I'm not worthy, I'm, I'm just not lovable, I'm incapable. All of these false beliefs that I came to believe about myself because when you don't have healthy coping mechanism and everything is completely overwhelming, how are you to believe otherwise? So these tools are helping me to change those thoughts because I obviously am capable if I'm sitting here today and I put this book together, even though that little voice inside will st still say, oh, okay, thank you for sharing because you know it's in there, but today we're gonna walk through it and, and we're gonna do the right thing. It's almost- so that's, that's where it came out. Yes, and it's almost like the power inside of you manifested itself outside of you and it keeps keeps giving you back the power of knowing that I can, that I'm capable of not only healing myself, but also being a, a vehicle to, to bring some of the things I've learned to the others. In, in one minute, if, um, if there's something we haven't really shared and you really want our listeners or viewers to know about you, your journey, or the book, do you see what I see? What would that be? I guess it's that I was always the type of person, like I had said, was, you know, just very black and white. It had to be this way or that way. And I, I do believe I always had hope. And I had, did believe that I had some kind of faith because when you're lying on a couch, you're agoraphobic with vertigo. And when you stand up, the room is spinning. And this was my last semester of college, which was, it was very difficult of undergrad that I had to pull out. You know, I became very depressed and then had to get help for that. Something bigger than myself pulled me and gave me hope that it could get better. And, and I think I didn't know what that was then. My father was in AA at the time and would always speak of a higher power. So I think that just something, there's always been a light inside me that's pulled me. No matter what I've been through, as hard as it's been, something has either carried me or pulled me through. And that has, just with meditating and all that, that part of myself has really grown and developed over these past few years. And even if it's a flicker of a star of hope, like we can enter recovery and we can do this together. 
you know, one day at a time. But for me, it's was really getting in tune with that light within yeah. and by meeting my needs and starting to set boundaries, letting it shine brighter and brighter because it was really buried under shame and guilt and doubt. This was very hard to put my book out there. It's raw, it's real. And there was a lot of shame with it. But you know what? I am who I am and accept me or not, like this is me. So. And I think the expression of, yeah, expression of our vulnerabilities and not only to sense how vulnerable we were, but to also come through. Uh, you know, brings the strength, brings the power. So, um, so you're very courageous for having um, all part, all vulnerable parts of you to be expressed, to be shared with the world. So not not only that you're getting empowered and moving forward, but empowering the world. So, everyone, please get the book. Do you see what I see? It's an interactive workbook of personal reflections, strategies, and tools. For anyone who's suffering from eating disorder, you can find Faith at faithalicia.com. And um, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Uh, don't go anywhere, everyone. We'll be right back. to share this matter with you, which is interesting. I have just come from a retreat of many days of meditation. And it just felt like I was calm. And as I woke up every morning, I did my meditation and I went through the calmness of the day as if I could handle anything and anything in the world would show up. And it was just kind of like, let go, like a Teflon effect. It wouldn't even stick. And amazingly enough, I didn't do, I didn't have time to do meditation for a couple of days. And this morning I woke up as if that agitation is there. And the agitation does not necessarily represent anything. It's just a rap agitation that is there. And then I watched my head, my brain, my thought process, um, as they looked for things that were there to pick on, as if I needed something for the agitation to kind of uh, get stuck to, go forward and attach itself to, where the same issues and the same conversations and the same matters were there the week before. So I wonder, what is the difference between the times that I'm calm and open and um, kind of flexible with things that are happening and look at those from a perspective of all is well, or that there's an agitation that is looking for a problem to solve, looking for things that are out there to make a point at it. So I realized also that a lot of people I work with, um, they look at things, with, for example, they wake up one day in their relationship and they look at all the things that have been there the day before, the way before that for years, but today they're gonna pick at it. They're going to say how much they don't like it, which on another day, same things are there, but they're flexible with it. What's the difference? The same thing can happen at work. You may be at the same type of job for many, many years. One day, it's intolerable. Another day, it's as if all is well, I can handle it. 
So it is important to know that the way we are with our world either makes it or breaks it. The way we attend to the world as is, it creates a space whether we could go with an openness to clear things, handle things, or we can go with an agitation, with an attitude, with a chip on our shoulder, with a sense of entitlement of why should it be this way and resisting it, and then changing it from a resistance place versus changing and adapting and from a place that is like, it's all, it's all well, and I'm going to you know, co-create or shift or adapt to what's happening or even change what's happening. So they come from, it's almost like the energy you come from dealing with things. It could either be a soft flow or it could be um, a fight. You get to choose. I was privy to look at, I wake up sometimes with a fighting mode and then I have to take care of myself to calm down that area, that agitation that showed up. And there's nothing wrong with it. And you don't always have to look at where is it showing up from? It's great to listen to it and see where is it coming from? And maybe if there's something you really need to handle, take care of yourself in some way so that the agitation is released and handled. On the other hand, it's also important to see if that agitation belongs to a certain matter. Just because it's here, it might also cling to all matters in life and create more of a problem than it is just because the agitation clung to something. So be aware of that. And the more that you can let go of that agitation and allow it to be handled with whatever the actual issue is, then it doesn't have to kind of spread over everything in all areas of your life uh, during the day. Thank you. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dr. Fujan Zain, and I am excited to be with Barbie Ingle. She is the president of International Pain Foundation, iPain. Um, she's an Amazon best-selling author of Wheels to Heels, and she is a reality TV personality. She's been in many, many shows that she's going to share with us. She's going to share the powerful story about life-changing events that forced reflection and sprouting her journey from wheels to heels. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and to share with your audience and you today. And I appreciate the time you're giving me. Barbie, um, pain is one of the um, most excruciating um, experience that any human being can go to, whether that is due to accidents or you know um, genetic factors that somebody was born with um, a particular condition or um, you know, there was a destruction to their body in some format. And as you know, it, uh, it is one of the highest reasons of why people also became an addict because because of pain, they went to doctors and you know, the doctors were trying to calm them down and calm the pain down and they got into opiates. And you know, working with addiction for the past 30 years, I've watched what pain has done to people. 
Um, but it did something else to you. You did something else with pain. So please share with us your journey, what happened um, and uh, how did you handle it? And what got you to deal with pain in a whole different way? Wow. So yeah, some people go into the, the wrong direction with getting the care they need. I, at first, struggled. The first three years, I did not get a proper diagnosis. I have a rare disease, reflex sympathetic dystrophy. And I knew that I wouldn't give up the life that I had. I was on top of the world. I had accomplished all the things I wanted to accomplish at that age and was living my best life. And I um, really just went from having everything down to nothing. I lost my marriage, my my house, my ability to drive, went down to food stamps. But instead of giving up or saying, why me? I knew that I needed to just keep fighting and to figure out what was going on and find what would work for me to get the best care. And it was a long process and I'm glad I never gave up. I'm glad that I kept pushing forward to find what steps. And it wasn't one thing. It wasn't one magical thing I was searching for. It ended up being a combination of treatments and and modalities um, from um, trying medications, surgery, changing my lifestyle, changing what I eat. It, it really took me reflecting on who I am and where I wanted to go and then finding ways to get to, to where I am today, which now I was in a wheelchair for seven years. That's my, why my book is From Wheels to Heels. And, um, and I found a way to get the care and the treatment that I needed, but it was a long process. It took a learning the, how to speak to doctors. So it was almost like learning a new language and um, it took never giving up and, and finding the positives in the most horrible situations. You just said is something that happens to most people where um, they spiral down and the loss isn't just the loss of part of their body. It's a loss of everything, as you shared, loss of relationships, loss of your standing in the community, loss of a lot of abilities and um, loss of hope more than anything. And what you just said about not giving up, that's one of the things when you lose hope about the future, people get uh, gravitate toward the resentment and then um, you know, loss of hope for the future. Uh, and what you just said was the beauty of not, not allowing that to happen. And I'm sure there were many, many probably days of you saying, I give up. And then something showed up and changed for you. What showed up, which you could go from a powerlessness and in a hopelessness state to a space of courage, wonder, curiosity, and um, you know, determination about I'm going to work through this. I think what showed up for me was realizing that I had hope. And sometimes I had just the littlest spark. And sometimes I had a great big amount of hope. And realizing that even the littlest spark could get me through, that I woke up today and that's a win. Today I did everything I was able to do, even though it wasn't very much compared to the standards of our world. So taking that, that moment where I took the guilt off of myself that I got from the people around me, from society, from, you know, what do I offer to, to society, taking that get, guilt off of me and realizing that I am more than my job. I am more than who I'm married to. I am more than what I do. 
And um, I had a psychiatrist that I was going to see because my world literally crashed around me. And he gave me that as a homework assignment. Find your I am's. Go home this week and write down all the things that you are. And this was early in the process. And although um, everything was crashing around me, I went home and I, I couldn't write anything down. I kept every time I would think of something that I am, I would say, ah, but but sometimes I'm not like right now I'm depressed right now. I'm not enough. And he called about halfway through the week and said, OK, what have you got on your list? Do you have anything on your list yet? And I said, no, I, I can't write anything down. And he said, it's not what you are 100 percent of the times. So these are things that you are. And it can be two conflicting things on your list. And he said, let's help you get started. And he, and he said, you believe in Jesus. You're, you're a Christian. You are spiritual. And I said, yeah, I'm spiritual. You know, I don't necessarily go to a church, but I am spiritual. So I put that as my first item on my list of I ams. And then they started flowing. I'm creative. I am unique. I am wonderful. I am nice. And it just started flowing out of me and I got my list going. And uh, by the time I went into his office, I had 75 I ams on my list. And uh, to this day, I've been keeping my list up. And when I have those bad times and I have no, no or little hope, I go back to who I am and, and go through that process again and realize that I am more than whatever challenge I'm facing. And something that I just heard from you is also that when the focus was only on the negative things of I am, you were stuck in that position. And when yes. kind of like you opened up this frame and it was like, it's not just the negative, negative things that I am. Look at all the positive things, even if they look small or feel small today. But I don't want to take those for granted. Those are also the areas that I can move and improve from. And that brought back the hope, I guess, as, as you kept yeah. focusing on the greatness that you have in all of these little pieces, it started elevating and it just expanded you. It's almost like if I think that I'm only the negative stuff, then it's what's the point? What's exactly. the point of survival? What's the point of living? But when, I, when I see all these... Um, all the other parts and I still focusing, then it's like there's a purpose into living. And then when there's a purpose into living, when I value that I am alive and what how I am worthy uh, with my surrounding, then that purpose allows us to get the courage to fight, to move forward, to get curious, to uh, move along and get all the information that is needed and, and to be able to do that. Is that what I'm hearing from you? Absolutely. And I also reminded myself, I had experiences in my life that no one else got to have or very few people on earth have gotten to have. And in doing that, I no one can take those experiences and those accomplishments away from me. Even if I can't do them today, I still got to do that. I still had that, that pleasure, that privilege, that, that uh, choice in life to do those things. And now I get to do other things and I get to reframe my life and regrow and now I wouldn't be afraid to lose everything all over again because I know I can live through it and if I can live through it anybody can live through it it's knowing that I'm not the only one out there going through challenges and struggles everybody faces challenges and struggles what are we going to do with them can you share a little bit about International Pain Foundation because it seems like it shows up out of your 
uh, strength in how you have taken care of yourself. And this is the way that you're also sharing yourself and what you've learned with the world and bringing this resource and people who can be together. Can you share a little bit about that? Absolutely. So International Pain Foundation works on education for patients and caregivers, for social events, for the public, uh, um, and access to care for patients. And that can include events that get the patients out of their houses. A lot of times when you're going through all these challenges and you feel like the world is weighing down on you, you need to get out and, and be social and do things, whether it's online where you connect with positive people online or in person where you connect physically with people. It's something that we need as human beings. And it's something that, um, that the foundation offers. And we, we also do uh, many different projects throughout the, the year for awareness as disease specific. We work with 150 different diseases and we work with physical, spiritual and uh, mental pain. It's beautiful because one of the main concerns with people who have pain is isolation. Yep. They have no tolerance for anyone and probably other people don't have tolerance with people who are in pain because they're agitated and complaining about their pain. So this isolation uh, forms a lot more of the depression and, uh, and hopelessness and powerlessness. And it's so beautiful to bring everybody together. And there are moments, hours that they can be together and kind of like a relief from that space of pain and remind themselves that there is there are source of energy that is out there from us to us, from yes. holding each other's hand, looking at each other's eyes, uh, saying something that you know makes the other person feel good so that they can get that hope, hope and the worthiness and the value that they have. Um, so that it would entice them to take a stand for themselves in all the different ways. So thank you for creating that. Uh, Barbie, Barbie, share with us about your, your book, Wheels to Heels. Um, what was the purpose of this book? What is it that you want to tell your readers? And what do you hope that they will gain out of reading this? My purpose for the book from Wheels to Heels was to create a resource for people using my story and my journey and the tips and tools that I learned along the way so that other people can get those hopefully sooner in their travels down this journey to, to get better in whatever ways that they need to in their life. And um, to see that, look, if, if I can do it, you can do it as well. I'm using very little costly resources. They, they cost you some time and some energy, but many of them don't cost you any money. And it just shows you how you can obtain the things that you need in your life so that you can live your best life so that you know that if you reach out and seek out that there is help and that gives you great reason for hope and to keep going yourself. And uh, what is it that uh, you want people who are suffering from a disease or a pain out there to know where is it that they can um, go within? Because I think there's two levels of processes okay. here, right? So okay. one is who you are with yourself and how you are with yourself, and then who you are with um, the society around you. And then what is it that you also need from the bigger picture of uh, the resources that are out there? Can you share a little bit from these three domains? Yes. So I'd say what can help you in, in all of these areas first is get organized and it takes time. It takes effort. That's what you have to put in. This becomes 
something that you need to focus on and, and create an oasis around that is positive for you so you can live your best life, but you can also help society at the same time. And it, it's really important to also set the expectation, set the expectations for yourself, learn by learning about what your condition is, how you can move through it. Don't get stuck using one treatment forever. Know that there's constantly new options and tools coming down the pipeline. Reach out and seek out those, those tools and that information to help your life. And set the expectation with your caregivers, with your family, with your friends. In the beginning, I did not handle it well. <laughs> and I lost many of my friends. And um, some of my family are like, I know Barbie wouldn't have given up her life. So I understand she's going through something. But until I understood what I was going through and understood myself, I couldn't set the expectation so that I could have good interactions with the people around me. And you need that. You need your, your support system around you for your everyday living, as well as for your medical team. You have to be part of an active leader in creating your medical team and doing the homework in between the 15 minute appointments a couple times a month. You have to do that work, but you also have to lead that team so that when you're with them, the people on your team can help you the most. And then in return, you can help them. Absolutely. Um, in one minute, is there anything we haven't shared that you really, really want our audience, viewers and uh, listeners to know about your journey or uh, the Wheel to Heals book? Yeah, just that it's a process that you have to take control of your own life. You have to be responsible and respect yourself and respect the people that are around you and so that you can get the hope and the help that you need and that you can create it. You can be a creator, a doer in life. And all it takes is breaking it down into to smaller sections. And if it seems overwhelming, stop, take pause, listen to what's going on around you and create a plan and then work towards that plan. Don't get mad at yourself. If you can't do it all in a day, things are probably going to take you longer. If you're facing a challenge, give yourself that time, that space, and that uh, ability to accomplish all the things that you want to accomplish because you too can do it. Barbie Engel, everyone, please get the book Wheels to Heels. And you can also find her at barbieengel.com. And uh, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for the time that you allowed and shared your, uh, your world with everyone through your book. And thank you so much for creating a society uh, International Pain Foundation, iPain, um, so that you can give resources to everyone who is suffering from pain from any aspects or illnesses. Thank you so much for having me. And I appreciate the Inner Voice podcast. And I hope that everybody listening will give you a five-star rating and continue to listen themselves. Thank you so much, Barbie. For all of you who are out there, create an amazing world for yourself and everyone around you. And until next week, Bye-bye.